Hey, how are you this weekend? Good, good to see you. I'm uh, glad that you are joining us uh, on a uh, beautiful weekend. Those of you who are here in Mount Pleasant, and then those of you joining us from one of our other campuses, I hope you're having a beautiful weekend as, as well. Or maybe you're on the internet and it's pretty there in your house on your little screen. But we are glad that all of you have joined this. As you know, we have been talking for the past few weeks and months at Seacoast about how God has called each of us to reach out to our community. And he's put a passion inside of us to reach out to people that maybe uh, are in a different position in life that w- than, than we are. It's exciting. Uh, during this Thanksgiving season right here in the Charleston area, we were able to feed over 3,000 families um, over in North Charleston with a Thanksgiving meal. And so... Talking to a, a lady last night, talking about her missional community and how they have adopted a, a homeless shelter in the Charleston area and are seeing amazing things going on there. I've heard about uh, uh, life groups going into schools and just some neat stuff going on as we are really focusing outside the walls of our church and looking at the people that Jesus looked at and going into the highways and the byways and, and, and reaching people that are in a different place in life than we are. Well, we're excited this weekend to continue that focus. Our special guest this weekend really don't need a, an introduction, especially if you're in my generation. You know who Chuck Colson is. You have heard of Chuck Colson all of your life. I, I know that I have from his time in the Nixon administration through founding uh, Prison Fellowship, which, by the way, is the largest prison, prison ministry in the world. They impact the lives of thousands and thousands of prisoners every year. And then this weekend, we are very privileged to have uh, Chuck's daughter, Emily, with us, who's going to share with us her heart for uh, special needs kids. And I know a lot of you guys have uh, a, uh, a passion in that area. And what I'd love for you to do as Chuck and Emily come and share with us, I want you to listen to their story with an ear to what is God saying to me? Because God may place a passion in your heart to help with prisoners, or he may place a passion for special needs kids, or it may be another area. But I want you just to listen as they talk and say, God, what are you speaking to me? Or it may be a very personal message of redemption and restoration in your own life. But I believe um, that today we are going to hear from God We're going to start with a video that's going to kind of introduce what we're going to talk about today. And then after the video, I want you to give a huge Seacoast welcome uh, to Chuck and Emily Colson. So let's take a look at this. Max is one of those kids that right from the beginning, you could tell that something was different. He didn't crawl when he was supposed to. He cried all the time. He didn't want to be social. He didn't make those little coo noises and want to talk. One of the hardest things about having an autistic child is not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. Is to come downstairs in the living room and just sit in this rocking chair, the same rocking chair that I used to rock Max in when he was a baby. And I just stare at the wall. I couldn't do anything else. Ours is not a story about God cured this child and That's not our story. Our story is like so many other families where the child isn't cured. So now what? I hope the readers read this book and feel like they can get up and do whatever it is that they need to do. I hope they fall in love with Max. Of course, because I'm in love with Max. Max is this bubbly, 
wonderful, joy-filled young man. He just, he has this ability to cut through everybody's pretense. If they're trying to put on airs, if they're trying to pretend something they're not, uh, he's gonna slice right through it. And I like that about him. My desire was to really write something that could meet that mom who's sitting in the rocking chair right now. Maybe they have an autistic child, maybe they have some other issue. Um, and to slip something into their hand that could tell them, here's your friend, Emily, and she knows where you are, she's been there, she's still there, but she's seen something different and there is hope. When I first learned that Max was autistic, a great friend of mine wrote me a note and said, you found real favor with God because he has given you a person with special needs in your family, so you will learn sacrificial love. At the time, I didn't really get it. Now, believe me, I get it. Your faith is really anchored when you're caught in this tension of not knowing how you're gonna go on and knowing you're not gonna quit. And so right in that space, between those two points, is where the only thing you have to hold on to is God. And I did. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. Thank you for that wonderfully gracious welcome and introduction. We're so happy to be here with you this morning. We really are, and all of you who are watching by television, because uh, I've had some great experiences in my Christian life over these many years. God has found ways often, however, to humble me, which is a good thing. I've preached in cathedrals and parliaments and uh, all over the world, and today I'm in a very unusual position. I'm here not to be the principal speaker, but to set up the speaker who happens to be my daughter. So that's an unusual role for me. I'm the, I'm the advance man. I'm bringing you a little advance on the message that you're going to get, which I know will inspire and thrill you because you've just had a look at it from that television, so you know what we're going to be talking about. I do get humbled often, and that's a good thing. Uh, I dedicated my first book, Born Again, to my wife, Patty, and to my father, and to my wife, Patty, because she's the one that always gets me up when I'm down and brings me down when I'm up. Everybody needs that great level. <laughs> And Max does exactly the same thing in my life. Max comes down to visit us in Florida, and he skips in the house. And you have autistic children. You know that repetitive behavior is very important. He's got to be sure everything in the house is in exactly the same place it was when he was there months before. And one of the first stops he makes, I admit it, I confess, is an ego wall. It's all the pictures that have been taken of me with famous people over the years. And uh, it's, he gets to that wall, and the first thing he does is start reciting the names. He'll say, Grandpa and Billy Graham, Grandpa and President Bush, Grandpa and the Pope. He goes through the whole thing. Well, and then he goes around the house and checks everything else. And the only rule we have in the house is that Max can't turn the fans on and off because repetitive behavior, if you keep turning that fan on and off, you'll burn the motor out quickly. So that's something only Grandpa does. Other than that, it doesn't matter. We have a great time when he's there. Well, he went back to school one day and he started telling his students, he started telling the other students where he'd been for for Christmas, and he starts reciting all the famous names. And the <laughs> teachers called my daughter and said, does your father really know all those people? And said, yes, he was in the White House. So the next day they got Max in. Tell, 
uh, your fellow students here tell the kids in the class all about your grandfather. He was in the White House. And what did he do in the White House, Max? You got it. Turns on the fans and turns them off. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons that I'm so grateful for Max, because he... Uh, He's, he's taught me a lot, and I'll talk about this in a moment, about love. Let me first say how glad we are to be here in this church, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but this new mission that Jeff was describing thrills me beyond anything I can even begin to describe to you, because I've been for 35 years preaching to the church to get out, be the salt and light, get into society, go into the prisons, do the things that get our hands dirty, because we're the ones that get the blessings when we do that, and this is what the church is supposed to be. And so I come here this weekend and I see the church doing what I've been longing for 35 years to see it do. So my hat's off to you and I would say, follow that vision. It is so important. It's kind of interesting also that it's happening here in, in uh, Mount Pleasant because just a few miles from here in Amanda, uh, my beloved son Chris and his wife Cheryl live and uh, Grandkids are all here this weekend, so we've been having a wonderful time. And right here in Mount Pleasant, Cheryl's mother and dad, uh, Charles and Martha Ray, live. So we feel very much at home with all of you here this weekend. Let me just come back to the mission of this church for a moment before I introduce Emily. Uh, the church belongs out in the highways and byways of life. Gates of hell can't stand against us. But they're not going to stand against us while you're sitting in church. This is the place we read Ephesians 4 where you're prepared for works of service to do the gospel, to go out into the world and to make a difference in people's lives. And if we did that, folks, we would turn this country upside down. Everybody's wringing their hands about what's going to happen in the United States of America today. And yeah, we're in decline, moral decline. We've got an economic problem. But all it's going to take is the church to start being the church. We're a majority in this country. If we really started living the faith, caring for the least of these, and caring for the least of these is number one on the agenda. When you are judged by God one day, he's going to say, did you come to me when I was in prison? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you feed me when I was hungry? And you're going to say, when did we not do that for you, Lord? And he said, no, no. What you did or didn't do for the least of these, my brothers, so the church is going to be measured by what it does for the least of these. And I spent 35 years working in the prisons. The reason I do it is that's my pro-life conviction. I believe that all human beings are made in the image of God. Everybody has the imago dei in them. And therefore, we care for every single human being, including what I used to think were the least and lowest in our society, prisoners. I now realize that people with disabilities, like Max, whom I've come to love so much, they're really the most forgotten people in society. And God comes for those who have no voice to speak for them. God comes. I used to think when I was, before I was a believer, I used to think that the, the Bible verse that I cited most often was, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> then I read the Bible. <laughs> Just the reverse. Just the reverse. God helps those who can't help themselves. And so, folks, when we're doing this, we are very close to the heart of God. Our pro-life convictions that we can express in all of our debates and all that sort of, you, you put them to practice when you're dealing with some really tough folks in prison, like James Murray here, our area director, executive director for South Carolina, who mobilizes volunteers. We want to get, if you, if you feel led to that, be sure to see James before you leave here. 
or if you go to the hurting and suffering people with disabilities. Remember that Hitler, before the great Holocaust, six million Jews were exterminated. Unthinkable. Five years before, he eliminated people with disabilities who couldn't be productive to society. They're the most vulnerable among us. Second point I want to make with you before I introduce Emily is that, and I want you to think about this, particularly as you're listening to her. I, I'm the tough type A former Marine captain. I, I'm all for hurry up, get things done. Max has slowed me down, and he's taught me about love in a depth I'd never understood before. What's the object of our faith? Love. But what kind of love? Eros, erotic love, attracted to people? Or philia, just brotherhood love? Or storhe, affection? Or no, agape love. The only kind of love which really can bring us close to God is when we are engaged in selfless love, which is what agape is. All other love forms are self-directed. So learn to love, and that means people that you didn't think you could love, or maybe are harder to love. But that's when you're going to learn, and that's a gift of God, when you begin to come closer to the kind of love he shows to us. And finally, and this is so important as you listen to Emily today, it's a, we're in a broken world. This is a fallen world. Bad things happen to people who think they're good people too. None of us are, but we think we are. But tough things are going to happen in life. There's no way to avoid it. The only question is, do you let God use those moments of adversity in your life for his greatest blessing, or do you just grumble about it? I went from the White House in the office next to the President of the United States when I was 41 years old. From there, in the Watergate scandal, which lots of young folks here, you've read about it in your history books. Uh, the Watergate scandal, I went from sitting in the office next to the President of the United States into a prison cell. A tough part for me was I thought, I'll never do anything important again. I'd started out in politics because I was very idealistic about my country. I signed up for the Marines as soon as I was old enough because if my country's at war, I want to fight. I just have always had this idealistic sense about doing something in my life. And I figured, now I'm in prison. Public enemy number one, front pages every day for two, three years. I'll never be able to do anything significant. Don't ever think that any adversity is going to prevent you from doing anything significant because God is sovereign. That's to deny the sovereignty of God. He reached down to that prison cell, picked me out. I didn't plan to do this. Went into ministry, and now after 35 years, this ministry is in 113 or 14 countries around the world, doing angel tree at Christmas for a half a million inmates' kids, spreading out all across this country, redeeming lost people. Most important thing I ever did in my life was to go to prison. That was the best thing that could have happened. Welcome adversity as your brother, James says. And he's right. And when you hear Emily, you'll see why. You'll also see why when you hear Emily, I am so proud of her. I have to tell you, uh, as a dad, this is a great moment for me that we can be out ministering together and sharing this message. And I'm so proud of what this woman's been through. It was really tough as a dad to see what she had to endure but now I see God's blessings in its richest forms. Emily, come up. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. I love you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and share our story with you. I see those pictures of Max, and I get all gooey inside. 
<laughs> a little bit undone and I miss him desperately, but I'm so glad to be here with all of you. We have had the most amazing adventure that God had planned a long time ago, back when I really thought things were looking very bleak. But for you to understand the victory, I need to give you a little picture of our background. Max is almost 20. He'll be 20 at uh, Christmas time, but he's still 19. I've got another month to say that. And when he came into the world, everything was really kind of going along as I thought everybody's life should. I thought normal life is when everything goes well. So I thought we were really zooming towards a great normal life and had a beautiful home, a career. I loved a husband I loved. Everything was just falling into place. Max came in like somebody pulled the pin out of a hand grenade and life just exploded. I was crazy in love with him. He wasn't hitting any of the milestones. I had that book that new moms get, the what to expect when life is perfect. And I couldn't check off anything in that book. But by 18 months, he took his first steps. That was a huge moment. He was going to walk. And three days later, my husband walked. I went through a painful divorce. And on the heels of divorce, Max was diagnosed with autism. All the while, there were specialists, now that he was diagnosed, telling me, you can cure autism. Now, that's a great thing when you have a young child. And boy, I worked hard. I did everything I could. It's not that easy. You have to work so hard just to even get in with a specialist. It's a year wait list to get into programs, to get into somebody who can tell you what to do. I was exhausted. By nine, I had not cured my son. He was more severely disabled than ever. We couldn't go out of the house because the tantrums were so great. They're not the kind of tantrums other kids have where they want to buy something and they throw themselves on the floor until they get it. Max wanted the world to make sense and it didn't. He was counting on me to tell him how to make sense of the world and I didn't understand it either. And by the end of the day, I'd put Max into bed hoping he'd sleep an hour, maybe two, three hours if I was fortunate. And I'd come downstairs and sit in a rocking chair because there was nothing left of me. I would stare at a wall. I wanted to stop feeling. I wanted everything to stop. Now, I know that autism isn't the only thing that puts us in that spot. I know a lot of you know exactly what that feels like when life hasn't gone as planned and you don't know where it's going. There are no open doors. Well, for me, it began to turn around through some very humbling and uh, difficult circumstances, some mistakes of my own, realized my own shortcomings. And I knew we couldn't live like that. We couldn't, we couldn't live like that for the rest of our lives. I couldn't keep doing this. I couldn't do it for another week. But I thought maybe what I could do is just one more day. That's it. I can do one more day. Then I began to think, well, if I had one more day, what would I do with that one day? Would I sit in the house feeling as if we were hostages of our circumstances because it was too difficult to go out? Would I spend my last day like that with my son? Or would we just go for it one day? Will I care if my son has a meltdown? Is that going to ruin my one last day? Well, it changed everything. We went out. It was not perfect. It was not pretty. But boy, something amazing started to happen. 
I saw Max work in people's hearts in a way that I never would have expected, in a way that I would have missed had we stayed home. I watched people do the kindest, most beautiful things that I don't even think they knew they were capable of doing. God was working through Max, not despite his autism, but because of his autism. I took Max on a walk, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but truly, <laughs> if you knew Max, he hates to walk. So when we got back toward the parking lot and he began to sprint, I sprinted after him. I thought he just can't wait to get back to our car. Well, that was not exactly the case. There was a woman getting out of her car. And as soon as she put her foot on the pavement, opened her car door to get out. My son went airborne, shot straight in front of her and landed flat across her front seat. Now, if you ever come to Boston and anyone other than Max does this, it's called a carjacking. <laughs> My son just particularly appreciated her car, but she was great. She summed up Max very quickly, understood the situation. She was so kind. Every time we saw her around town, she let Max, well, she had no choice, but Max played in her car. <laughs> she was so wonderful. And one day she called us and she said she had bad news. And really, I thought something has happened to someone in her family. She said, we're selling the car. I said, no, not the car. But she let us come over for one last visit. We met her husband. He was, of course, a little bit curious about Max. It's hard not to be. And... Uh, we got to talking about Max and his baseball team. Their family loves baseball. And I told him how beautiful these kids are, how it's just about the joy of the game. They don't keep score. These are the kids who would be on the sidelines, but they're right out there on the field, just loving it, feeling so wonderful. They're helping each other. They cheer for each other. It doesn't matter whose team you're on. They all want the other person to do well. It's so beautiful. Well, the next day, Mr. Woods went into the board of directors for the Youth Baseball League in our town, and he initiated a challenger league in our town because he knew that Max's baseball team was several towns away. Now 40 kids come in our town every summer and play baseball because Max jumped into someone's car and the Woods jumped in and helped. We have a wonderful teacher, Lena. She's been with us for 10 years. Max will be with her tonight. And she took Max out one day to a, a, what we call the Smithsonian Museum of Appliances, which is otherwise known as the gas station mini mart. Max loves appliances. He loves vacuum cleaners and refrigerators and microwaves. So when Max walked into this convenience store, oh, you really want to be around someone like this. It's so fun when he notices all the details of life and how beautiful they are. He's jumping up and down and screaming and he's so excited. Well, the clerk was not joining in his enthusiasm. Shot a few remarks at Max and why is he doing that? Don't let him touch that. Hey, what's he doing? And there was a customer up at the counter buying a candy bar. Lena realized this situation was deteriorating quickly. So she put her arm around Max and she said, Max, I think we should find another store. Well, the customer up at the counter turned back to the clerk, took the candy bar, gently slid it back toward the clerk, 
put her money back in her purse and said, with a smile, I think I'll find another store too. She walked out with my son. What a beautiful moment of standing with someone and knowing this is not the way that anyone should be treated. And I'm pretty sure that clerk still remembers that moment too. Max has a way of changing people. These kids get under our skin, these adults, the weak among us, do something to us, and we don't even know it until we're with them. One of the most wonderful things has been to watch Max and my dad. It's so precious. Their relationship is the most unlikely pairing, and yet it's so beautiful to watch them. When Max was very young, my dad, who is a great teacher, he has a wealth of knowledge, wanted to impart this great wisdom on his grandson. And Max had absolutely no interest whatsoever. <laughs> but when Max was about six, six, my dad became ill and was on the couch watching us for a week, watching the way that we interacted, watching what Max would do, what he could do. And it changed my dad. He saw something so beautiful in his grandson. He saw what Max could do, not what he couldn't do. Now, when we go to Florida to visit my dad, he clears his schedule. Nobody but Max can get my dad to do this. And we play for a whole week. My dad plays mini golf and goes swimming with us and goes to the park and the zoo. I can't tell you what a gift that is, not just to his grandson, but to me. It's been a gift to all of us. My dad even had the privilege of baptizing Max. We went to his church and we couldn't be inside the church. It was too difficult, but there are television monitors outside in the lobby. And Max saw a woman being baptized and he turned to me and he said, what's that? Well, I tried to explain it simply and I said, it means she loves Jesus. She's being baptized. Well, Max thought about it a moment and he said, I want to be baptized. Well, my dad and I spent about three days grilling Max. It was an interrogation. Does he understand this? Should we do it? It was such a wonderful thing. But we didn't want to do something if he didn't really understand the meaning of baptism. Max answered every question. He's a fact factory. He can tell you anything. And finally, my dad and I at the same time realized we were making this much too hard for Max. He's asking to be baptized. So one day in Florida, my dad, who's been such a great influence in my own faith, baptized my son. <laughs> it's not about what he can't do. That moment was about what he can do. He can give his life to Christ. I want to really encourage you in here. If you are in that rocking chair right now, I want you to hold on because when I was there, I know looking back now that God was with me, I know that he was smiling because he knew the plans he had for me, plans to give me a hope and a future. He has that for you as well. You have such great programs. If you're not in that rocking chair, I really hope that you will take a look Kim Gabriel is in charge, I believe, of your, of your one-by-one program. 
you have a dinner coming up, the Luke 14 dinner. I hope I've got that right. It's on Valentine's Day where I'm not going to explain this correctly, but the ones who are being served are the disabled. Oh, come on. That's fabulous. Such a model for other churches to pick up on and follow. You have the heart of the caregiver ministry that supports and loves caregivers. We need that. I'm going to tell you how much we need that. Those moms and dads and siblings and grandparents who are in the rocking chair and they feel as if there isn't any hope, you could be an answer to someone's prayer. I have to tell you about Max at our church because it's a great victory. It's a little bit of an upside down way of looking at things. Max, for many years, was not able to go to our church. He could go when he was very young. I could bring him into the toddler room and I could stay with him and he'd love the music and bounce on my knee and have a great time. But then he turned seven, eight, nine. It just didn't work anymore. It's like anything else in life. And we did what so many other families with severely disabled loved ones do. We stayed home. Well, I'll tell you that Sunday mornings were heartbreaking for me every Sunday morning. I'd see cars going down the street knowing that they were going to church. Well, it's Boston, so they were going to coffee, but <laughs> somebody somewhere was going to church, and it wasn't us. So one day I thought, this is, this is just too much. I can't bear that the one thing that we can't do is go to church. We're living big. We're living brave. Every single day as our last, I can't let it sit. The church is the one place that has barriers up. So I thought, well, there's one thing that Max always loved about church. He loved it to be over. So we went when church was over. <laughs> and a great thing happened. Someone came up to Max and asked him to help stack chairs. He was great at that. He loved it. And at the end, when we're about to leave and everyone's closing up the church, that man came back up to Max, put his hand on his shoulder as if Max were being knighted and said, Max, we could use you on the grunt crew. Well, the grunt crew is the group of guys that cleans up the church. Max straightened up and he gasped. He was so thrilled to be included, to be needed. For six years now, we've gone to what we call backwards church, where we get there at the end. And Max is the most joyful post-service server you've ever met. He transforms our church. See, I thought it was only about how much Max needed the church and how much we needed to be there as a family. What I didn't account for is how much the church needs the Maxes of the world. I want to read to you just a little bit to give you a picture of what that looks like. Max has never sat through a sermon at our church, at least not yet. I've taken it off our immediate list of goals. God has a mission for Max at our church, backward as it may once have appeared. Max doesn't just come to church. He's part of the church, and he is loved. But we do come a little earlier now for Grunt Crew so that Max can hear the music at the end of the service. 
he arrives in time to throw the doors open and stand with me in the back doorway as he holds his as-seen-on-TV swivel sweeper in one hand, like a shepherd with a staff. The lights are down and the words appear on the screen behind the musicians. Max can read well and points to words he especially likes, spells them aloud, even sings a little. And when the congregation is really fortunate, he dances. Max's joy of worship is so pure and free that it feels like someone sprayed air freshener all around us. As Paul, our pastor, says, church isn't over until Max dances at the back door. One Sunday, with Max in his mid-teens, we were standing together in the open doorway, listening to the music and holding hands. Max was so excited that he was bouncing on his toes, and I started bouncing too. I felt such gratitude that it was practically narcotic. And then the music team began to play a song called I Can Do All Things, using the scripture from Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It reminded me of the Superman symbol I'd drawn in the margin of my Bible. Apparently, the song reminded Max of a video he loves by the Donut Man. First, Max was just pointing to the words on the screen. Then, he started doing what I believed to be the cha-cha. But when it came time to the for the refrain, Max couldn't hold back. The congregation sang with the music team, I can do all things. There was meant to be a silent pause, but Max filled it, his voice slicing through the darkness of the church. How many things? Max yelled from the back of the sanctuary as he lunged into the service with his fist in the air. I can do all things, the church answered in song. A million things, Max asked the congregation, and they answered. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God bless you. Thank you. It has been an amazing privilege to have Chuck and Emily Colson with us today. Um, they're unable to respond to requests from churches. They get um, dozens and dozens of them every week. And yet because of their connections with family here, they, they were able to be with us. And I, I think there was a profound message. There's, there's three pictures I want you to consider as we finish our message today. The first picture is a picture of Chuck Colson sitting in prison. His career destroyed his future completely uncertain, feeling like there is no hope for him, even though he had already committed his life to Christ. And yet the greatest part of Chuck's life was ahead of him, and his impact on the world has been since Watergate and since prison, as God has used that to give him a platform to literally change his world. Some of you today are metaphorically in a prison cell. You feel like that the best is behind you. You feel like that because of mistakes or circumstances or something that has happened in your life that your future is uncertain or worthless. And God wants you to know that he knows your name. He knows where you are. He feels your pain. And he has a hope and a future for you. There's nothing that you have done in the past that can 
change what God wants to do in your future. If you're my generation, you know Chuck Colson's past. And yet it's not his past that we dwell on, but what God has done since. And that's God's message for you today. A second picture that I want you to reflect on is the picture of Emily in that rocking chair. And Max has overwhelmed her life. And some of you know exactly how she felt. You have a child at home or a parent that you are taking care of or a relative that you are so deeply entwined in what's going on in their life and you feel completely overwhelmed and you feel alone and you feel like, I don't know if I can do this another day, another week, another month. And God knows your name. And he loves you. And he is there for you. And as hard as it gets taking care of that loved one, God knows and he's watching. And he wants you to know today that he will sustain you today and tomorrow. And then the final picture that I want us to consider today is the picture of Mrs. Wood opening the door of her car and little Max flying into her car. And from that moment, she figures out a way to minister to Max. And for her, it was as simply as saying, come over and play in my car. God is placing a passion in your heart, in your life. There are people around you, and some of them may be special needs children, or they may be the homeless, or they may be lost people at your country club. And I don't know what that passion is, but God is calling you to do something. To do something. And I challenge you today to figure out, God, what is that something you're calling me to do? Let me pray with, uh, with, with you. Father, thank you for this amazing message, both from Chuck Colson and from his daughter, Emily. And Lord, we are amazed at the way you have used their lives and used tragedy in their lives to shine your light in the dark places, to shine your light in prisons, to shine your light in the lonely homes of caregivers. And Lord, to shine your light in our hearts, which can be dark with selfishness. Lord, I pray that you will light our worlds. Lord, I pray for that person who feels lost today, that you will call them to yourself. I pray for that person who feels alone today, that they will feel your comfort and your spirit. And I pray for all of us, Lord, who are just asking, what do you want me to do? How can I reach out? Lord, I pray that you'll make it clear to us in your name. Amen.